0: Amen and amen. Everyone have a seat. We move into our teaching time. And then we will uh, be ending things with the Lord's table, with communion, the Eucharist. And uh, this morning we wrap up three weeks of talking about one of the smallest books in the Bible, Paul's letter to Philemon. It's found in the New Testament. And we again, uh, for the third week in a row, are going to uh, read the entire book. And once again, in a good chuckle, you can say you read an entire book of the Bible today. So we're concluding it, Philemon, which is a personal letter between Paul writing to a man named Philemon, who's probably rather wealthy, and Paul is requesting that Philemon receive back his runaway servant or slave but not as a slave again, but now receiving him back as a Christian brother with all sorts of ramifications. And so here's the letter. Let me read it to you and uh, follow along and see if you can uh, catch the drift of what's going on. I actually don't think it's too difficult. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and coworker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards, toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good That we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from uh, your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me. So that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while. So that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Papyrus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If we had no other letter... In the New Testament, not Romans, not Galatians or Ephesians, nothing else, nothing else from Paul, no other correspondence uh, or other information about those first followers of Jesus. All we had was this letter written somewhere around 40, perhaps even 50 AD. If this is all we had, this one little letter, we would know this about those very first followers of Jesus, the first Christians. They were countercultural world-upsetting radicals. They were going against the tide of the Roman Empire, upsetting the social and cultural norms of the day in the name of Jesus Christ. They were upsetting the balance of things. Slave owners were not only forgiving others, but also accepting back fugitive slaves. And we can only even understand that people like Onesimus were actually forgiving those that were their former masters. Truth and reconciliation. Right here. Brothers rather than owners and slaves. Wealthy men like Philemon became the servant of former slaves. While poor and broken down Paul, very well off at one time in his life, very educated, a Roman citizen, now sits rotting in a Roman prison writing to Philemon. If he's wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I write this with my own hand. This is my this is my IOU, if you so need it. <laughs> Does he even have anything to give at that point in his life? All of this brought about by Jesus, the Galilean peasant rabbi, from the backwaters of the Roman Empire that they didn't even hardly care about. You didn't even need to really guard it. Here comes this, this country bumpkin rabbi named Jesus, and, we, and he is the one who changes the world. He is the one who has had the most lasting impact on modern history. He is the one who offers up a countercultural, topsy-turvy, subversive vision of the world and the way it's supposed to be. It is Jesus Christ who offers up even these sayings here that we can quote so easily, where he says in the, in the Gospel of Luke, What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves, he says. Again, in Matthew, another Gospel writer, For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And then in Mark, I called the crowd. he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers let them deny themselves take up the cross and be, and and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake for the sake of the gospel will save it. Back in the time of Jesus Paul Philemon and Onesimus there were plenty of supposedly powerful men. There was already the precedent in human history about what it means to be successful and powerful and actually get things done the right way. People like Pontius Pilate, the governor who, who sentenced Jesus to death, was a little man swept along in an empire's ruthless quest for glory, power, and dominance. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, Jews, were now little men in a desperate struggle to try and maintain some sort of tradition for their people and end up being puppets of the state, no more than religious little uh, figures. And then, of course, the greatest puppet of all, King Herod, who was a grubby little uh, dictator who wielded power the way all little dictators do with reckless, blustering, gross brutality, having his brother killed, his wife killed, his sons killed off, and he would have killed more if he could find anyone. All comers. Compared to Jesus, even Caesar Tiberius was a little man. Just one more in a long line of people scrapping for power who strut and fret their hour upon the stage and then are heard no more. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Near the end of his life, nearly 200 years ago, Napoleon Bonaparte, sitting in exile in his old age, diseased and dying, wrote in his journal, I have spent my entire life attempting to change the world, shedding much blood, conquering nations, fighting for my whole life. And never did I even come close to changing the world like the simple carpenter from Nazareth. Napoleon could not figure out how to change the world the way Jesus did. And here's how he did it. Mark chapter 10. You know, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Everyone, who is prepared to follow Jesus? Who has this mindset right here this Sunday morning in our lifetime? Will you take the path downward? Will you take the path downward, descending into greatness? Will this be your way? Or will you attempt to do what's which is so popular right now in our culture, which is Christians of all people trying to grasp at power politics? trying to do what the world does and failing miserably like it always has and instead pushing the people away from love and justice and mercy. Are we prepared for this? I've noticed several things over the years of watching volunteers, being involved with volunteer work, for the last 35 years. I've watched people who actually change the world. And how they get it done. And I've noticed several things. Things that we notice. But I'm not sure you can actually plan them. And, and here's really the first thing. I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a chalk talk here for you. Um, the very first thing. If you want to change the world. Is this. You must first. Think this. Something. Something is terribly wrong. Something is terribly wrong. Something that keeps you awake at night. Something that gives you a passion. Something that disturbs you that you know is not right and you must do something about it. You don't know what, but you must do something about it. People who change the world have something that is burning inside of them that disturbs them so much they can't hardly live with themselves. They become uncomfortable beings, people who must change the world. You see, the problem is, is far too many Christians are actually buying into consumerism where we really think everything that they're showing us on television is exactly what we're all supposed to become as human beings, which is comfort seekers. And comfort seekers do not change the world they become comfortable. When a tired 42-year-old working mother decided not to give up her bus seat to a white rider on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, she did so because she was tired. That's why she stayed put. She was not a revolutionary at the time. She was not trying to become a national icon. She was just a little bit more tired than the day before. And so she said, I'm not moving. She did not plan on being arrested that day. She just wanted to go home. And nevertheless, Rosa Parks changed this nation to this very day. Every time I think of this moment in history and her decision, I think to myself, could I do that? And then I have to smirk at myself because I'm the white guy that she would have had to give the seat up for. (laughs) So maybe no. But I can ask this question. Is there something terribly wrong in this world that we have to do something about? Do you ask this question? Do you have a passion that is burning within you? Something that's a gift from God? Something imposed upon you by the Holy Spirit that says, if you don't get anything else done in your life, will you get this done? Lord, I pray for a passion for all of us that we become uncomfortable. (laughs) They used to tell us in seminary that said, "Your job as a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable." And maybe today is the afflict the comfortable day. Maybe it is. The second thing about people who want to change the world that I've noticed over the years is this: people who want to change the world. They make small stakes decisions. Yeah, I can't erase this. Decisions that go big. In other words, they do things, once again, a lot like the first one, they do things they aren't planning. They get in over their head. They make a small decision that gets bigger than they are. This is how people change the world. And what comes to my mind always is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a nobody pastor in a nobody Baptist church in the nobody South. Just like Jesus in the backwoods, in the backwater. And he said, well, maybe we ought to do a boycott then on the Montgomery bus system, on the transit authority. We'll show them, you know, that we're not going to take it. And then it's all supposed to blow over after a few days. And everybody thought it would go back the way it was. He got in way over his head. He made a small stakes decision that went big. And the rest becomes history. That boycott changed the lives of every single person in this country, including yours and mine. And it was started because somebody was following Jesus. The third thing most world changers do is that they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. You look at people who change the world, they don't know anything about what they're trying to pull off. In other words, I put it this way. Passion before plan. Passion before plan. The passion leads you to a plan. It's the way it always works. I, I know, you know, you're taught that you're supposed to have everything figured out, and, and you know, if you want to go to the bank, you've got to go in with a business plan. They've got software. You can write up your small business plan, walk in there, get stuff done, you know, and they're going to give you a loan. Like, well, yeah, it looks like you might be able to repay it, whatever, we'll just take your building in the end anyway. But, um, but that's not the way people who really change the world get things done. They're not trying to... To please underwriters and loan officers, they actually get in way over their head. They have their eyes on the prize and nothing will stop them. And more often, those who gather around them get extremely frustrated because they keep hoping for a plan. Well, how are you going to raise, you know, 1.3 million gigawatts or whatever? They don't know, they just go. They're more entrepreneurial than they know what's good for them but they have their eyes on the prize and that's what makes them change the world. One more observation I've had. You already have everything you need. Not only because there's a good God but because this is the way change happens. You already have everything you need. People who do not change the world think they have to have something. How am I going to get $30,000 to get this done? Oh, well, I guess that won't ever happen. Or when I get that done, when I win the lottery or something like that. How am I going to have authority to change a public law or to get something done in a municipality unless I have the authority to do so? I better run for office, and then, of course, they get sucked into something that they don't want to get sucked into. You already have everything you need right now on this Sunday morning in 2015. You already have everything you need. The only thing you may be missing is something that's terribly wrong. That's it. That's how people change the world. Around here, years ago, uh, we would come up with you know great ministries and programs, and we'd take 18 months, and we'd put a budget to it, and we'd organize teams, and we'd get leaders, and we'd, you know, it'd all be on a a PowerPoint and all the rest of that sort of thing. And in the end, most of the ministries, this is kind of a confession moment here, by the way, Uh, so, you know, you can give me absolution here in a second. Most of the ministries and plans that we came up with did, eh, you know, some were a big blockbuster success. I just can't think of any right now, but I could run through pretty much all of the folders on my computer and tell you about things that we put massive amounts of horsepower on and it it came out sort of eh. On the other hand, respite care that goes on around here started, how do I put this politely? Not well. We were too stupid to know that we couldn't accept special needs families into this church. We just—they came in and they said—and we said, "Like sure, we can do that." Hey, Steve, would you mind taking care of this kid who might bite and scratch you? Why, sure I would. And suddenly we began to hear as the special needs families began to come in and say, "Like we went to another church and they said uh, they couldn't accommodate us." Like those were, those people actually had a brain; they knew whether they were. Not us. And so this thing actually turns into serving the entire community—some 80 people or whatever—and all sorts of families for a few hours a, a month. Uh, where they get to take a break and maybe just go out to dinner and maybe go to a movie, and then they come back and get their kids. Some kids had feeding tubes that were intubated and so forth like that. Other kids were trying to escape out of the building. (laughs) It was a crack-up. I would see guys my age, done with the evening, just T-shirt drenched with sweat from chasing some 8-year-old who had ADHD or whatever their thing was. And loving every second of it. No idea what they were getting involved with. Changing a family in some small way. Oh yeah, and then we had the brutal metal concerts here years ago. You got to get your metal down, you know. It was brutal, and um, and this this was colorful um, <laughs> and really really wrong by anybody's standard. And it was violent. It it was uh, it ain't holy, and f bomb here and cussing the church and all of that sort of stuff, and I had the little old ladies calling me up from around the town saying, like, that sort of thing shouldn't be going on in God's house and all that sort of thing, and, and I'm thinking and saying, probably as I think about it, maybe not as well as I should have, um, well, where else are they going to go someday when they get a baby? Because you know that's what happens, right? They get a baby, and then they're like, I got to get back to church because I'm going to screw this thing up, and so they come back, and I thought, are they going to go to the church that kicked them out, or are they going to go to the one that said, like, well, Come on in. And some of them are still around here today, every now and then. I've had a story uh, that I read years and years ago from Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors. He passed a couple of years ago. Brennan Manning uh, shared lots of stories. And Brendan Manning, himself, a very broken person, just like we sang at the beginning of the service, we're broken people. Well, he, was an, he was an exemplary broken person. And ex-alcoholic, I guess you call yourself an alcoholic. It, there's no such thing as an ex-alcoholic, right? Uh, get the lingo down. A ex-Catholic priest and went around the country telling people, like, it's okay to come out of hiding. And he, he, he traveled the world And he had run into a person that he wrote about. And this story, I tell you, I think about it about every month. And it reorients me, and so I share it with you again. It's a story about a nobody who cashed out and loved sacrificially. The man's name was Dominique Vollemais. Dominique Vollemais. And he was French. Dominique, a lean, muscular, six-foot, two-inch, always wearing a navy blue beret, Learned at age 54 that he was dying of inoperable cancer, Manning says. With the church's permission, he moved into a poor neighborhood in Paris and took a job as a night watchman in a factory. Returning home every morning at 8 a.m., he would go directly to a little park across the street from where he lived and sit down on a wooden bench. Hanging around the park were marginal people, drifters, winos, has-beens, dirty old men who ogled the girls passing by. Dominique never criticized, scolded, or reprimanded them. He laughed, told stories, shared his candy, accepted all of them just as they were. He gave off a peace, a serenity, a sense of self-possession, and a hospitality of a heart that caused cynical young men and defeated old men to gravitate towards him. Dominique was the most non-judgmental person I'd ever known, Manning says. He loved with the heart of Jesus Christ. One day the Ragtag Whoops, I think my microphone just went out. Did it? I'm back. You guys are good. One day the ragtag group of rejects asked him to talk about himself, and Dominique he gave them a thumbnail description of his life. And then he told them that God loved them tenderly and stubbornly. And that Jesus had come for rejects and outcasts just like themselves. Later, one old timer said, The dirty jokes and vulgar language and the leering at the girls just stopped. One morning, Dominique failed to show up at his park bench. And a few hours later, he was found dead on the floor of his cold water flat. He died in obscurity in a Parisian slum. After an all-night prayer vigil by his friends, he was buried in an unadorned pine box in the backyard of the little brother's house at St. Remy. A simple wooden cross over his grave with the inscription, Dominique Foyme, a witness to Jesus Christ, is all it said. More than 7,000 people gathered from all over Europe to attend his funeral. That's inspiring to me. Not because I want 7,000 people at my funeral, but because he had no idea what he was doing. No plan. And he changed so many lives. Just because he had a passion. For years, just personally, I've attempted to subvert what it means to be an American pastor in this time. These days, in America, church is supposed to be successful and big. And we're supposed to have thousands of people and multiple, multiple ministries and program. Then you get a television station, I guess, or something. And instead, what we're trying to do around here is just follow Jesus. It's not about becoming famous. It's just not. We're just trying to be faithful, not successful. We think we will be successful <clears throat> if we just simply do what Jesus said. And I think that's what you all are trying to do too. And I think that's what's going on around here. If you ask me, the church should be measured not by how many people come to it, but by how many people go out from it where they go to Liberia like Kathy Guterres is right now holding the hands of women going through a fistula operation to repair their life and get back their dignity or whether it's you guys who go to Haiti and hold orphans and play with kids who don't have any parents anymore because of an earthquake or whether it's those of you who go and sit and worship with those who are being persecuted in the underground house church in China or whether it's those of you who go down and try and create housing in the inner city in our urban core on the east side or those of you who work with at-risk students just right here, just a few blocks away in our very own neighborhood. On and on and on and on. People acting subversively, descending into greatness for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a successful Christian these days, It's to be faithful. And that's the way it ought to be, and it's just not real popular right now. Just like I'm sure it wasn't popular when Philemon, you know, was asked, to give back Onesimus. Who do we want to be, everyone? Do we want to be like Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who calls us and says, come with me, come with me on this journey into nothingness, and we will change the world. You see, everyone, when we, we'll take communion here in a second. When you come and participate in that loaf and in that cup, you're being marked out the remembrance is not only just a remembrance of what Jesus did for you. It's a remembrance of who you belong to, of what you're participating in. You're participating in the Holy Spirit that is inside of you that is saying, I belong. It is an identity moment. You are identifying with Jesus Christ. It's that sort of a powerful thing that's going on. And the servers want to come forward. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's our job, everyone, is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it with every step we take and every word we we utter, every act that we do with our life that says Jesus is Lord and King. He descended into greatness, and we should follow him down, and we will change the world. Stand with me, please, if you would as we proclaim this mystery of faith. Join me, everyone. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, everyone. Therefore, let us keep the feast, alleluia, the gifts of God for the people of God. May each day Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. When you come forward, whenever you're ready, tear off a piece of the bread Dip it in the chalice and understand once again who you're participating in. Come whenever you're ready. The Lord is waiting. Now, Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food. Quicken our hearts and minds and body and soul towards you. May we become those people that we've always wanted to be. And take this journey, this journey downward into greatness. And we all said, amen. Just to wrap things up, you know, Philemon's name, it's in the Bible. But church tradition holds that Philemon and his wife, Apphia, were both stoned to death for their faith in Colossae. And church tradition also holds that Onesimus, the former slave, became a bishop. How a topsy-turvy world happens is because people obey Jesus. that's how we change the world and that's how it's still going to get changed